Welcome, everyone. You can make your way to your seats and turn to the book of Nehemiah. As we continue in our series through Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 2 today. It's good to see you all this morning. Good to worship together with you. So let's hear the word of God read. Today's reading is from Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and the gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priest, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Hear the word of the Lord. So we're continuing this morning in our series on God's construction project. Uh, this is our series through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and in it we're uh, we're seeing what God did as he brought the Israelites back from exile into Jerusalem and they began to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall. And of course, we know that God's up to a different construction project in our own lives and in the church today in building the church. So that'll be part of our application. But as I thought about construction, I, I was just wondering and thinking, uh, and actually I was kind of thinking through some of, some of your vocations and I was thinking, what is the largest most expansive, most significant project that you've ever been a part of. One that maybe required coordination with other people, where the stakes are high, and this could be a building project, it could be something at work. For some of you, some of you remember renovating this room in 2007 and 2008. It was a pretty large project when they like doubled the height of this room to make this auditorium. Or maybe you've been a part of a large house remodel. I think some of you have never stopped remodeling your house since you moved in. Um, I, I was thinking of one gentleman here who has 
uh, been a superintendent in building multi-story buildings in Durham. Or maybe you've developed microchips that, that work in computers all around the world. Or uh, maybe you, you work on Linux software that runs servers in, with major companies around the globe. Th- these are large projects. I was, I, was, I was doing some research on what are some large construction projects. One of the top hits for that is actually the space station. I thought, I wouldn't have thought, you know, the space station is a construction project, but the number of years, the amount of money, the number of people involved in that is significant. Or maybe, uh, maybe a large project that you've been a part of was, was an event that you helped prepare for. Maybe it was a theatrical event or a musical event, which you spent hours working together uh, to coordinate together to create something together. Maybe it was educational or maybe a military campaign. Uh, maybe you uh, helped run a nuclear power plant that powers how households all around North Carolina. Um, there's, there's lots of projects that we could be a part of. And if you've ever been a part of a project, even something as small as the, the stage that Brad and his team helped build in the backyard here, there was a lot of red tape, even for something that small. Like the town of Apex really cared about exactly how we built that stage. Uh, there's a lot of red tape. Uh, you could even say opposition at points. You have to do it this way. You can't do it the way you want. Sometimes when you're involved in a building project, you face apathy from the people involved who just aren't interested in the same goals you are, or maybe a lack of resources, uh, or maybe confusion about the vision or the purpose of what you're doing. These are all things that were faced by the Israelites in Jerusalem um, in the 4th and 5th century BC as they were coming back to Jerusalem and began building the wall and build, rebuilding the temple. These are things which Nehemiah encountered and had to overcome as a leader coming to help the people of God do what God had called them to do. They faced opposition and apathy and resources and confusion. And Nehemiah brought significant leadership to help in all of those areas. So in our passage today, we're going to look at, at three things. We're going to look at Nehemiah's preparation Nehemiah's persuasion, and the people's participation. So we've got Nehemiah's preparation, Nehemiah's persuasion, and the people's participation. Let's pray again together. Lord, I echo uh, the prayers uh, we've already prayed this morning, just giving you thanks for the wedding yesterday afternoon of Josiah and Grace. What a, a joyful opportunity to to think about Christ and his church, to think about marriage, to think about your good gifts to us. Um, and so we're just grateful for that. And we're also aware, Lord, that there, there are people who are ill and sick. We pray this morning for, uh, for Daniel Baker uh, as he's been sick the last few days. Pray that you would give him swift recovery and be with him as he's not able to be with us this morning. And Lord, I also pray for the victims and their families uh, from the tragedy in Korea last night where 150 people were trampled to death in, a, in an accident. And I just pray that you would, uh, even in such a tragedy as that, that the church in Seoul, Korea would be able to minister to those families who were impacted by that tragedy. And Lord, it's, we, are so, we are so blessed uh, to experience your good things. And yet tragedy is, 
can always be right around the corner in difficulties. And we know that you uh, prepare your people for suffering uh, and you prepare us to put our hope in things that are eternal. So I pray, Lord, that you would grant relief and comfort to those families and that you would help us as your church to prepare to suffer well and also prepare to minister to those in need. Help us this morning, Lord, as we look at your word um, to not just see this as the story of God's people thousands of years ago, uh, but a part of our story as well, that we would learn from it, that we would apply the principles we see here um, to impact our own uh, life of faith and our own obedience and our own risk-taking to work for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with Nehemiah's preparation in chapter 2. So we actually started chapter 2 here here in verse 9. In a previous sermon in the series, we covered chapter 1 in the first part of chapter 2. But if if you look down at verse 9, you'll see that the first part of our text describes the preparation that Nehemiah undertook before he called the Jews in Jerusalem uh, to join him in the work. So we've known since earlier in the book that Nehemiah is coming to Jerusalem uh, to help build the wall or to lead building the wall. But there's quite a lot we can learn from Nehemiah's preparation in getting to this point. Now, Nehemiah could be for us in some ways a master class in leadership and project management. And if you've never like read the book of Nehemiah, thinking about those topics of what can I learn about leadership from Nehemiah, that'd be a great thing to do. I'll point out some of those things as we go along today. Um, but in verse 9, one of the first things that we see is that Nehemiah began by answering the political question of his authority to work in Jerusalem. So we're immediately aware of the letters that um, were granted to Nehemiah that gave him authority to do what he was doing. As well, we notice that he also had, he had the king's letters and he also had the king's officers and horsemen to back it up. I mean, it's great to have a letter. It's better to have an army. So, you know, if, if, you're, if you're going to have authority in a place, uh, he brought with him letters explaining his authority, and he also brought with him the force of authority uh, with the state. Now, this isn't how the church works. We don't work with threat of force in our, as our authority. But for, for Nehemiah in his place, where he was exerting leadership in the city, he brought letters explaining his authority, and he brought uh, the officers and horsemen. Now, we don't know if Nehemiah actually requested uh, a, a military a group to go with him. Uh, we, we do know that Ezra, in chapter 8 of Ezra, like he was, he was opting not to have a military escort, not because it wasn't a dangerous journey when he returned to Jerusalem, but because he didn't want to bring, he wanted to kind of magnify God's going to protect us. And so Ezra, as the priest coming back, was saying, God, God's going to protect us in this journey, and the Lord did protect them. But Nehemiah is coming for, he didn't just need protection on the journey, perhaps like Ezra, but he needed to establish that he had the right to do this work in Jerusalem. And so we don't know if the king suggested it or if uh, Nehemiah asked for this military escort, but it's sent with him with the letters. 
Like I said, it's probably less about safety on the journey and more about communicating the legitimacy of the change in leadership in Jerusalem. Nehemiah comes into town, uh, not merely with the letters, but military force. So, so he has that. That was part of his preparation. Um, interestingly, so Nehemiah, when he gets there, verse 11, it says that uh, he, was, he stayed there in Jerusalem three days before he did anything. Um, I don't think there's anything magic about this three days, but you know, we would think, oh, you need to you know, sleep off your jet lag when you travel a long way before you go to work. And he didn't have jet lag, but it was a long journey, a tiring journey. And Ezra did the same thing when he got to Jerusalem after the journey, paused for three days to rest and said, all right, what, what, what are we going to do here? Um, now, it's a question I've had, has Nehemiah ever been to Jerusalem before? I don't know if you've asked that question. Uh, we know from chapter 1 that his, his brother came to tell him what was going on in Jerusalem. But as far as I can tell, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem before. Uh, and so he's, he's, he's there. And, and so after these three days of rest, what does Nehemiah do? Well, he's going to go and explore the walls and the city by night. I feel all of a sudden like I'm thrown into the narrative of a spy thriller movie. And Nehemiah is going to, at night, take a few men with him uh, to go explore the walls. Now, we know he came to help build the walls, and yet he wants to see firsthand what's going on. We don't know who the few men are that went with Nehemiah uh, to go explore the walls together. Uh, but we know they were likely not the Jewish leaders in the city because he's, he's, he's telling us, I, I haven't said anything to them yet. And yet, so he, maybe these are some counselors that he brought with him. Uh, perhaps it is some people from the city that kind of know the walls really well that are going to show them around. Maybe he brought some engineers with him, you know, as he's going around the walls to see what's going on. But at night, so that nobody will know what's going on, he goes out the city gate and begins going around the wall. And um, he doesn't make it all the way around. Jeremy, do we have a, any of the maps there? Oh, yeah, I love maps. So uh, <laughs> kudos to the ESV Study Bible for a couple of really cool maps. Um, so the, the, the west, western corner uh, is about in the middle of the map on the, le- on the west side of the city. is about where he went out, the valley gate. Um, there's a line pointing to it. And he went around basically... Uh, to the bottom right corner. So he, he went around just maybe a third of the city gate, actually, as he was exploring to see what the status of the city was. How about that next one, Jeremy? Uh, so here's a different view of it. So the green shaded area is the size of the city before the exile. And then you see the, the narrow lines uh, around the city of David This is the size of the city that Nehemiah is restoring. So he actually didn't restore the the walls and the gates as far as the previous city was. Uh, But again, he started on that western edge, valley gate, went down to the fountain gate in the bottom corner. That's what Nehemiah explored. And actually this eastern wall uh, originally was way down in the valley, uh, but it was so torn and broken that they built it up higher on the hill as they were repairing and restoring the wall during Nehemiah's 
time. And these walls, some of them were excavated in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and they were like eight feet thick walls that they built around the city on that eastern side. Anyway, just thought a graphic uh, makes me look like I was more prepared for the sermon. So there you go. Uh, so, um, so, we, so, we have, so we have Nehemiah's exploring the walls around the city and deciding how are we going to go about this project. Again, we're talking about Nehemiah's preparation. So part of his preparation was to explore the actual state of things around the city. So in verse 12, it says, I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one of what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem, or verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Now, Nehemiah doesn't tell us why he kept this secret. But at a minimum, he wanted to keep his plans from getting into the hands of his opposition. Now, as Claire read this morning, we've, we already heard about the opposition uh, in verse 10 and again in verse 19. So we know this is, this, is, uh, this is current opposition and also some foreshadowing of future opposition throughout the book of Nehemiah. But there is opposition, and so he wanted to keep the plans away from the enemy as long as possible. But also, I think Nehemiah was thinking as he's preparing for this project... What does he need to know before he tries to convince the Jews to do the work? And so part of that was exploring uh, the city together. So that's the preparation we see in our passage this morning. There actually was preparation that's happened before this, which we've already read about. But I just want to put it back in our mind in the context of how did Nehemiah prepare for this project? In chapter 2, verse 7, uh, this is where... Um, he considers what he might need. So he thought about what he would need when he gets there. So in verse 7 it says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So he knows he, he, needs, he needs some political solutions for where he's going. And then uh, he also con considered his material and financial needs in verse 8. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So part of his preparation was thinking about his political needs, but also his material and financial needs that he asked the king and it was granted. But actually, um, this, is a, this is a principle that we see Jesus say in the Gospels. Like, you should think about something before you go and do it. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, here in this passage, Jesus is actually not giving contractor building advice. 
he's using that to say you need to count the cost as you become a disciple. When you commit to follow Christ, you need to realize what that's going to take. But what's obvious is he references this idea of knowing what you're going to need before you get there. And that's what Nehemiah did. But we could even back up further in Nehemiah's timeline to see how did he prepare for this. So when the king asks him what he wants to do, what does Nehemiah do? Does he just blurt out all of his plans? No. It says, the king says, what are you requesting in verse 4? And he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah's preparation wasn't just in the moment. It wasn't just the physical planning. It was the spiritual um, like prayer to God. What does God want me to do? How do I answer the king? Am I rightly oriented toward what God is doing to respond to this question? He didn't just jump in in the midst of a very emotional and visceral response to what was going on in Jerusalem when he answered the king. He prayed. He stopped and prayed. Now, just, just think of that. So the king asks you a question. Now, we don't know how long this prayer was. My guess is it was pretty short. But when the king asks you a question, you don't normally just say, hang on just a minute. And stop. Pray. So it's significant that when the king asks Nehemiah what he's going to do, that he takes time to pray. I need to seek the Lord. This is a good reminder to us. In whatever situation we find ourselves, it's right to pause and pray before we answer. But his preparation began even before that. You see, because in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, we find out like how Nehemiah got involved in this to begin with was he heard from his brother about the state of what was going on in Jerusalem. And in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Then Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Verse 4, And as soon as I heard these words, their response, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah's preparation began as he cultivated, as he cultivated his identity as part of the people of God, and he cultivated his longing for the city of God. This happened way before, like, he was cultivating that even before his brothers came. And it's evident to us that that was part of how God prepared him. That's how God prepared him, part of the way God prepared him for the work that he was going to send Nehemiah to do. So Nehemiah gave a lot of preparation to uh, being ready for this task. All right, so Nehemiah's persuasion. So he does all this preparation work. He's, he's exploring the city. He's exploring the walls. He's seeing how bad things really are. And so now his task is he needs to persuade the people in Jerusalem to join him in this work. After months of his journey and his secret reconnaissance, he's got to convince them. Now, this is not as easy as you might think. I mean, we're assuming, we, we assume a lot if we think the people of Jerusalem were ready to build a wall before Nehemiah came. You see, they've, they've been there for decades, having worked on the temple, and they haven't built the wall. So there's a reason they haven't built the wall. 
to this point. And Nehemiah comes, and I think this is one of the reasons that Nehemiah didn't tell him what he was about to do. Um, he kept it from them until he was ready. So, so one way to think of this is we, we've already talked about how it was, a, it was miraculous. It was, a, it was the providence of God that opened up King Artaxerxes' heart to, to, to do this, to allow Nehemiah to go and do this. But we should also think it was a work of God to change the hearts of the people within Jerusalem, to be ready and willing to do the work and to join Nehemiah in the task. So let's look at how Nehemiah persuaded them. I'm in chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words of the king that he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. So we're going we're gonna to look at how Nehemiah goes about this. But first let me say what he didn't do. Nehemiah didn't just walk into town and say, okay, new leadership. This is not Elon Musk coming into Twitter. This is Nehemiah coming into Jerusalem. New leadership here. You're just going to do what I say and we're going to turn this thing around. That's not how Nehemiah did the work here in Jerusalem. He didn't say there's a new sheriff in town. We're going to get some things done. It's not what Nehemiah does. So I've got six things that Nehemiah does with them. First, he identifies with them. Number two, he cares about what they care about. Number three, he invites them to join him in the work. Number four, he frames the situation theologically and spiritually. Five, he testifies to God's involvement. And six, he is prepared for opposition. Okay, six things. So first, he identifies with them. Look at verse 17 again. He says, you see the trouble we are in. Now, according to verse 16, verse 16 tells us who he's talking to. Verse 16, he had kept from them, from who? The Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So he had hidden, hidden all this stuff from them. And then verse 17, then I said to them, so after he had done all of his preparation, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. So he identifies with them. He, it'd been easy for them to separate themselves from Nehemiah. I mean, he just came to town. They've been there perhaps for years, perhaps for uh, 20 years, and all of a sudden Nehemiah shows up and is going to tell them what to do. But he says, you see the trouble we are in. He identifies with them. They could have easily said, where have you been all this time? But they didn't. He identifies with them. He takes on their burdens. Number two, he cares about what they care about. He says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. He cares about what they care 
about. He's obviously affected by this. After all, this, this news is what caused Nehemiah to leave his post under the king as his cupbearer to travel hundreds of miles and to do this work. He is affected by this. He, he was so affected hundreds of miles away that he wept and mourned for days and fasted. There's no indication here that Nehemiah blames them at all for the state of the city. He, he doesn't say, why haven't you built the wall yet? He comes in and he identifies with them and he, he cares what they care about. Now, part of the reason that th- this is a big deal, that the walls are broken and the gates are burned, is for their safety and insecurity as a people. Not having defenses or protection. But that's not, that's not the only reason that he cares about this. You see, there's, they're exposed and embarrassed. And Nehemiah shares that concern with them. And this shared concern gives them confidence in his leadership as they move forward. Number three, he invites them to join the work. So, uh, he says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Sounds simple enough. Come, let's build the wall. But if you put yourself in their shoes for a minute, it's, it's a pretty tough existence already. And, and Nehemiah is asking them to sacrifice, to work hard. It involves risk. It involves perhaps leaving their vocation that earns them a living for a time. But notice that he, he, he invites them. Now, perhaps you could read this as a command, like, come, let us build this wall of Jerusalem, like, like he's telling them what to do. But to me, it just, it reads like an invitation. Come, let us, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. And so he in saying, let us build, he's identifying with their plight and with their own sacrifice. Now, if we heard that, if we heard that invitation, we would have had a lot of questions. A lot of questions or doubts or maybe fear of what other, other people are going to do. Fear of the opposition, uh, fear of the cost to our own uh, family to do this. But he invites them to join the work. Next, he frames the situation theologically and spiritually. See, Nehemiah gives them a reason for building the wall. He says, that we may no longer suffer derision. That we may no longer, that's not typically how we talk. We need to do this so we no longer suffer derision. So what is Nehemiah getting at? So it is true that the, the Jews there in Jerusalem would feel the emotional embarrassment of the state of their city. They're surrounded by all these uh, pagan cultures. They've been taken into exile. They're, they're returning. They remember the glory of the city and the temple before it fell. And they're embarrassed by its current state. And the walls are broken. And the gates are burned. But Nehemiah is saying more than just yeah, we need to kind of polish up the downtown area again so we can be proud of it. He's saying so much more than that. He's giving a 
theological and spiritual framework for why they need to do this. So what is that? Well, the Hebrew word for derision here could be translated this way, disgrace, a taunt, scorn, shame, reproach. So there's a reproach on the people of God in the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is saying, we've got to do this work because we need to take this reproach away. What is this reproach that needed to be taken away? It, it's, so much more, it's so much more than just walls and gates. We have to think back to why. Why is the city in derision? Why do the nations scorn the city? Why is the city under reproach? And the answer is, God poured out His judgment on His people. This isn't just about architecture. This is about God's judgment has been on His people because of their disobedience and disregard for God's ways. So God judged the city. Here, a couple of passages on that. Ezekiel 5 I don't know if we have this back there or not. Ezekiel 5, 14. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you. And in the sight of all who pass by, you shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you. When I execute judgments on you in anger and fury with furious rebukes, I am the Lord, I have spoken. See, that's the theological framework for why the city was in the condition that it was in. Or Jeremiah in chapter 24, 9 puts it this way. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. They were under God's judgment. So Nehemiah is not just calling them to live in greater security and safety. But he's calling them to learn the lesson that they need to learn from God's judgment. And to repent and live a faithful, a faithful life. To live faithfully as the people of God. So that they can live to God's glory and act as a people set apart for God. A city set on a hill. So he gives them a reason why they need to repair the walls. They need to repair the walls because they need to no longer be a reproach and a shame because of their disobedience, but they need to repent and turn to God. Next, Nehemiah not only gives them a, a theological framework for why they need to do the work, he testifies to God's involvement. Verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been on me, for good, and the words of the king that had been spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. So as Christians, we tend to so, we tend to forget. So there are some things we remember and some things we forget. So in my experience as Christians, we typically remember, we keep in mind, our God can do anything, right? We tend to remember that. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens He does all that he pleases. I think we do remember that 
often, in whatever circumstance we're in, we can remember God can do anything he wants to do. But we remember that. We often forget things too. What do we forget? We often forget the ways that God has entered into our lives in our days and helped us. So we remember that God is transcendent and overall and all-powerful. But we often forget that God, in his imminence, condescends into our own lives and enters into our story. And we need help remembering this. So one of the things that Nehemiah does is Nehemiah testifies to what God had already done in preparing him for this moment. Why did he do that? Because when we hear what God is doing in the lives of people around us, that stirs up in us faith. We know it. We, we know it. We, we, read, we read the promises of God in the Scripture, and we believe them, and yet in our daily lives we forget God enters in, and he works on our behalf, on behalf of his people, and he saves, and he transforms and he sanctifies and he rescues and he comforts. And what Nehemiah does here is he tells them how the hand of his God had been on him for good. What a good message for the Jews there who had returned, who had started a work and yet it had fizzled out and they, is God still working? Is God still moving? Is God still directing his people? And Nehemiah reminds them, he testifies to them of God's good work. This is one of the reasons we gather every Sunday on the first day of the week, because we need to hear testimony of what God's doing in one another's lives, because it stirs up our own faith. We remember God's transcendence, but we need to remember his imminence, that he is near. Friends, our God is near. He is near to us. Finally, Nehemiah, in his leadership, uh, prepares for opposition. So this is verses 19 and 20. So when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servants of uh, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants. We will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now, I've got to be honest, I like Nehemiah's response here to them. So, who are these people opposing him? We're going to hear more about them in in weeks to come in our sermon series. Um, So, there are going to be lots of passages that deal with opposition. But for right now, uh, these enemies are leaders from the regions surrounding Jerusalem, uh, so Samaria, Ammon, and Arabia, and they falsely accuse uh, Nehemiah for rebelling against the king. I mean, it's like political strategy hasn't changed that much uh, in a couple thousand years, so there's a lot of false accusations going on. Notice what Nehemiah does, though. He doesn't first go to his authority from the king to answer these objections, these false accusations. What does he do? Our God is going to cause us to prosper. He orients himself toward God who's going to make them prosper in their work. And he doesn't compromise 
at all. He doesn't ask these enemies, well, how do you think we should go about doing this project? How do you, how do you think we could work together to accomplish God's goals? That is not how Nehemiah approaches these, uh, these people in opposition to God's plan. No, he plainly tells them they have no portion in this conversation. They are not a part of God's, of God's plan here. This is not their jurisdiction. They do not get to define this issue. God defines it. They are not a part of the people of God, and God's people do what God says. Now, there are many ways we could think about this in our own social context but there are certain times when, when our culture stands up and opposes us, there are certain times we need to say, we cannot compromise on what you're asking us to do because we belong to God and God is going to make us prosper. We have to do it God's way. Now, there's a distinction between what's going on here in Jerusalem as a, as a physical representation of God's kingdom and the church. We know that God, there's no longer a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile that keeps Gentiles from repenting and coming to faith in Christ and becoming a part of the church. The friend, when the culture comes in and says, you need to meet us halfway when God's given clear commands, we say, no, we belong to God and we have to obey God rather than men. So that's Nehemiah's persuasion. He, he persuades them and... I just love their response. Uh, it, it seems so quick when you read it in a narrative form like this, but I've got to think there was a lot of conversation that went around this. But what did they eventually do? Uh, so it says in verse 18, after he had given testimony, what did they say? Let us rise and build. They didn't just say, well, I guess we'll do what you told us to do. They, they owned it. They were all in. They they were on board for what God was doing in Jerusalem. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. All right, the people's participation, chapter 3. Uh, we're not going to read the whole chapter. Uh, there's, there's a lot, there are a lot of names here, a lot of lists, a lot of what's going on. So I'm going to kind of summarize what's going on here. But let's read verses 1 through 5 just to get a sample of it. So then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. End on a happy note there. So... The whole chapter is filled with this list. It's a list of individuals and families and groups that participated in the wall building project. 
So why is this long, detailed list of names and the sections of the wall in the book? And get ready, there, there are more lists in Nehemiah. So uh, you'll come across one in chapter 10, those who sealed the covenant, chapter 7, the returned exiles, chapter 11, the leaders in Jerusalem, chapter 12, the priests and Levites. There's a lot of lists here in Nehemiah. This particular list is interesting because if, if we went back to our map, it's kind of defining all the sections uh, starting up at the temple going around all the way back up to the temple of the sections of the wall. I think I counted maybe 41 different sections listed here in chapter 3 as what was being built. But these these Jews applied themselves to the work, and they did it. So it's interesting to think about... um, It's interesting to think about the kinds of of groups that built the wall... Um, I was kind of thinking of, you know, you go to a sports stadium and there's all the sponsorships along the fence, like, hey, you know, this, this part was sponsored by this company. Like, there are different groups. So you've got, uh, you've got families who do part of the wall. Uh, you've got people who live near that section of the wall who do that part of the wall. You have um, merchant guilds, like you've got the goldsmiths, they did a section of the wall. The perfumers, the perfumers did part of the wall. Like, hey, this is the perfumer section of the wall. Um, I bet that smells kind of like Adam's soap shop, you know, just smells good at that section of the wall. Uh, so you've got, so different, different groups, you've got the priest and the Levites did part of the wall. They did some of it, especially up near the temple. They did sections of the wall. Uh, all the different social classes are represented. You had rulers doing a part, Levites doing a part, priests doing a part, temple servants doing a part. You actually had people from the surrounding towns come and do a part of the wall. So within about 20 miles of Jerusalem, you had groups from uh, Jericho, uh, Tekoa, Gibeon, Mizpah, men of the surrounding area. They all came to participate in this wall-building project. It's really an impressive feat of leadership on Nehemiah's part to coordinate and bring all of these peoples together. Uh, one family in verse 12, uh, he, brought a, he, he had his daughters helping with him. Um, you know, Hasheleth, let's see, Shalom, the son of Hasheleth, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Like they, they went after the wall together. Not everyone joined in. We have one outlier, which I read in verse 5. So the to- Tekoites repaired, but their nobles wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord. And, uh, you know, Sometimes you think, I really want to get in the list. And sometimes you think, I wish my name was not in the list. I, I don't want to be on that list, and that has to be true for them. Why did they not stoop to serve? They wouldn't bend their shoulder to the work. Um, I, I don't know why. I don't know if it was because they didn't want to work hard. It's probably more likely that uh, their town was close to Geshem, um, or where Geshem would have ruled one of the enemies in opposition. Perhaps they were afraid of repercussions from him. But it is notable that out of this whole chapter of everyone building, everyone joining in, there's only one, one group of people listed this way, right? So what's the overall picture? They all joined together for the work. This is a, this is a picture which should sound familiar to us in the church. So how should we apply this to our lives? 
I've got a couple, couple of areas I want us to think about as we try to apply this to how are you. That's a, that's a great story, John, about what happened with Nehemiah. What about us today? So in the area of preparation, that was one of our points, Nehemiah's preparation, I want to challenge us to think about how we prepare for what God calls us to. I was thinking of my own context growing up. In, in the church where I grew up, we regularly, when I was a child and a teenager, regularly heard an invitation. Would you consider full-time Christian ministry? Would you consider becoming a pastor one day or a youth pastor or a missionary? But somehow all my pastors and youth pastors and revival preachers that I heard growing up were regularly asking me to consider to dedicate my life to doing God's work. This was formative for me. By the, by the summer of my ninth grade year, I decided I want to serve God full-time in my life. I felt called by God to a vocation and a career path. Of So my career path was, was largely determined before I even graduated high school. I was going to go get a music degree. I was going to go to seminary. I was going to work in a church full-time. And though there's something really helpful about that kind of call, that kind of call to serve God with your life, since then, I've expanded what I think that call is. You see, that call for us is more than a call to be a pastor, which is a great thing to do, or to be a a frontier missionary, which is a great thing to do. But actually, this call of preparation is that God would, you, would prepare you now for what God has for you to do in the future within your own vocation. So for the last 30 years, I've been thankful for that calling that was stirred up in me you know, to consider full-time Christian ministry. But I think the calling and preparation and vocation needs to be broader than that. And this, this is what I'm thinking about with Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah was called and prepared at an early age in some way to accomplish all these things that he did. He didn't just automatically become this kind of leader. He had clearly applied himself spiritually to think what God was doing and how God could use him in his vocation. So whatever vocation, whatever, whatever vocation God is calling us toward... He intends for us to live our lives oriented toward God's glory and God's kingdom. That's what Nehemiah does. Whatever he's doing, he's orienting his calling and vocation toward God's glory and kingdom. So whether you're a lawyer, a stay-at-home mom, an entrepreneur, a tradesman, a project manager, a school teacher, an engineer, working in financial services, a doctor, a nurse, or medical research... Uh, in the hospitality industry, economics, political office or public service, pastoral ministry, software developer in the military, a frontier missionary, a Bible translator. God wants to use all of those vocations for his kingdom, not just people that work at a church. And so my question to you, church, is are you preparing? Are you preparing and pursuing your vocation in a way that when God taps on you and says, that thing that you've been learning to do for the last 20 years, I have a purpose for that to be used in my kingdom in a way you never imagined. Would you prepare for that? Would you prepare your heart to identify with the people of God and prepare your skills so that your skills can be used for God's purposes in ways that you may not yet see? 
You see, the question is not about the particular vocations we pursue, but whether we pursue them for the glory of God and whether we are ready to be used by God with how God has prepared us. So we need to prepare. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we need to be prepared. I've already talked about persuading, particularly that we need to use our own testimony. Would we be ready to share the testimony of what God's doing in our own lives to stir the faith of others? And be eager to ask others, how is God stirring in your heart? What is God teaching you? How is God leading you? How has God entered into your world in, um, in recent days so that our faith as a church could be stirred up? And then finally, we need to participate. This is a church that highly participates. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church where so many of you feel the call and, and the burden to do the one another's of loving one another, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, showing hospitality to one another. We started this morning thinking about what's the biggest project you've ever been a part of? Friends, the project that we've been called to be a part of is grander than anything we can imagine. Now, Jerusalem being rebuilt, there was glory in that. It was restored to some degree of glory. God's people were blessed. But we're called to build something. We're called to build something that will outlast this world. The people of God. We're called to to pour into the lives of other human beings that are going to live forever. And either give glory to the Lord forever or will suffer forever. We're called to build something together that's more glorious. In fact, it's not only of this world, it's, it's more glorious than the whole universe. You see, the, the people of God worshiping God forever and ever is what God has called us to. And will we be happy, joyful, active participants in that building. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul uses an analogy, and we'll close with this. So Andrew, you can bring the team back up. In 1 Corinthians 3, starting verse 10, he says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We are all called to be building. We're called to be building not not just a building, 
not just a, not just a local expression of the church. We're called to, to, to identify ourselves with the people of God, with a command to worship God. And you wonder about that list of all these names in chapter 3. Why is that important? Well, there's another book. There's another book where names are listed. Revelation 20 says, Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. There are going to be books opened. God is not oblivious to what you're doing in his name. And he will reward us for those ways that we sacrifice for him, for his kingdom. Let's stand together and pray. Oh God, help us to build well. Help us to build with things that will last. Help us to build with faith, with joy. Help us to build with compassion for the people of God and their plight. Help us to build inviting those who are outside Christ to come into the church, to know Christ and the forgiveness of sins, salvation in his name. We pray in Jesus' name.